Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. Thank you, Josh. That's, I know that's not, uh, not what worship leaders want to hear right before they're about to lead. Nobody knows the words. Um, but you, you did great, and we're thankful for you. And uh, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And as you turn in there, we're going to just take some time and be still before the Lord. And uh, I don't know about you, but it feels like it's been a bit of a scrambled week, and a scrambled morning even. Not all of us were climbing on ladders today, but it's just, sometimes things just aren't going according to plan, and it's hard to get your heart still. Um, so we're going to just take a minute and be still before the Lord, and invite Him to speak to us, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. God, we just want to uh, confess before you now that we're, we're creatures. Um, Lord, we're not gods. And uh, Lord, we've got lots of things on our plates, lots of responsibilities, lots of thoughts rolling around in our minds, and it's overwhelming. And Lord, I, I suspect even today there are people who, have, who feel like they haven't yet sat down. They feel like they're not here yet because they're just, their mind is somewhere else with stress or anxiety or, or trials or maybe they're just feeling exhausted. I thank you, God, that you are the God of all comfort and you meet us where we are. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would today just still our hearts, Lord, whatever, whatever it might be that's causing us to be looking in every, every wrong direction, I pray that you'd still us and that you'd lift our eyes to see you. Lord, that's what we want as we look to your word today. We want to see you. We want to be transformed by you. And we can't muster that up in our strength. We need the help of your spirit. So I pray that your spirit would move in our midst today, that you would open eyes, that you would soften hearts, that you would unstop the ears, Lord, that, that perhaps even today would be a day when someone would see you for the very first time, uh, Lord, and that's always a miracle. We ask for that miracle today. And Lord, as we look to your word, we look with great confidence because the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. And the word goes forth and it never returns void. So God, speak today. We're listening. Lord, help us to listen with faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Well, I hope at this point you're in your Bibles in Acts chapter 4, and I want to give you a bit of a recap. Again, Acts chapter 4, it's a narrative, right? We're in a narrative, which means that we have to do these little recaps week after week because it's a story, and we're in, we're in the story. So we had in the beginning of this chapter, uh, Peter and John making their way to the temple to worship and to pray, and they encountered a lame man. And this man had been lame for his whole life. And so in the powerful name of Jesus, they told this man to stand up and walk. And he leapt with them into the temple, praising God. And a crowd gathered, right? And so they, they took that opportunity and they told this crowd just who had healed this man. They said he's been healed in the name of Jesus. And they called the crowd to repentance. And people repented and people believed, thousands of them. It was a scene unlike anything any of us have ever witnessed. But the religious leaders in the temple were upset because they had just killed Jesus seven weeks prior and now they've got this commotion all over again. And so they arrest Peter and John and they set them out for a night in prison. And then after that night, they bring them before the Sanhedrin, which is 70 of the, the most powerful men in the city. And this Sanhedrin try to intimidate them and they, and they, they try to, you know, it, intimidate them. I can't think of another synonym for in, intimidate, but that's what they're doing. They're threatening them. And after they've, they've been through this whole thing and Peter and John, they say, no, we're going to keep Preaching about Jesus, they give him one last warning. They say, listen, you are not allowed to preach about Jesus any longer. And they release them. And so that, that's the scene this morning. Peter and John have, have now left the Sanhedrin. And we're going to pick up, we're going to find them in a room with the church. 
But in my mind, as I'm reading through this story, I'm just imagining Peter and John making their way through the dark streets of Jerusalem, and they still smell like the prison cell, right? And they've, they've got these threats now from the Sanhedrin rolling around in their minds. Now, Peter and John knew what the cost was to follow Jesus. They, weren't, they knew this. Uh, more than any of us, they knew this. Peter was there when, when Jesus was subjected to that mockery of a trial. Peter stood at a distance and watched how they mistreated and mocked Jesus. And in fact, that was when Peter was a coward and he denied Jesus three times. So Peter knew the cost. And John was the beloved disciple who, who actually stood at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mother Mary. He watched as Jesus scarred, battered body breathed its last from the cross. So Peter and John knew the cost. But I would argue that this is the first time here in Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John are now feeling the cost in their flesh. They're smelling the cost. They've got it rolling around in their mind. Now, so now this isn't, just, this isn't just theology. This isn't just the cost for people out there. This is the cost for people right here. And that's, that's important for us. I mean... We, every Thursday night in our Life Together program, we close with a reading from the, the Voice of the Martyrs, which is another one of, the, one of our partners. And we hear stories about these young... This week we heard about a young girl who was in prison. She was, was she 16, I think, in prison for her faith. And she's a brand new believer. And, and immediately she's placed in prison and who knows if she's going to get out of prison. We, we don't hear it at the, at the end of the story. But they tell her, like, we're sorry that you're going through this. And she says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this because I love Jesus. Right? She's seeing the cost, counting the cost. And we're hearing about people who are being killed for their faith. And I don't know about you, but when I hear those stories, my mind immediately asks the question, would I endure? You know, because I know the cost in here. But what happens when the cost is felt in my life? How will I respond? Well, thankfully, I would argue that in this story we find a, a tremendous example that we can follow. When the day comes and the heat is turned up and we finally feel the press of persecution in a very real way in our midst, I hope that our hearts and our minds will return to this story in Acts chapter 4. Look with me now, beginning in verse 23. And hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and they said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against Your holy servant, Jesus, whom You anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever Your hand and Your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So at this point in the story, the Sanhedrin has issued their warning, right? Keep speaking about Jesus and you're going to wind up like Jesus. And the apostles have drawn their line in the sand. They, they looked at the Sanhedrin and they said, whether it's right for us to listen to you or to God, you're going to have to decide. But we're going to listen and we're going to speak of what we've seen and heard. Therefore, the church is about to feel the wrath of the world. And for this church in Jerusalem, they're going to feel this in their flesh, in their lives, in their families for the very first time. How will they respond? Where do they turn first? That's a good question. Well, we see it in verse 24. And when they heard it, what did they do? They lifted their voices together to God. This is how people of faith respond to persecution. What we find in our text for this morning and our structure for our our text this morning is this. This is a prayer for perilous times. And in this passage, we find a tremendous example that I would commend before you today as one that is worth following. We're never going to face the exact circumstances here that we find. You know, none of us are going to stand before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And yet we would be naive to think that we will not face real, settled opposition against our faith. And as I was preparing for this upstairs earlier this morning, it felt so, um, what's the word, trivial. Because the reality is that, especially with the way things are these days in the media, you know, there's so much fear-mongering. And I think, you know, we're swimming in fear-mongering all the time. We watch the news and it's fear-mongering. And we turn on the YouTube and all the algorithms are sending us exactly what my fear is. And, it, and, I, and as I was up there, I thought, I don't want to be fear-mongering this morning. I don't want to tell you that I have a timeline of when the heat is going to turn up. But, but what I do want you to hear, and I want this to cut through all the noise of that stuff we're hearing, is that hard days will come. Hard days are going to come. I mean, for our children... The trajectory that we're moving on as a nation, it is going to be difficult to follow Jesus. The cost is going to be very real. It's not going to be here. It's going to be lived out. We need to see this. And we need to know how do people pray when those days come? Right? How do we pray when we've just been issued the warning? Well, here we see five steps. There are five lessons here that I want, I want to just present to you that we need to apply in our own prayer lives. First of all, in perilous times, we need to pray, we need to right-size our view of God. I want you to notice where they begin their prayer, and I especially want you to notice that they don't begin their prayer with an emphasis on their problems. They begin their prayer with an emphasis on their great God. Look at verse 24 again. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God, and they said... Woe is us! Change our circumstance! No, they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That's where they begin. Because you see, big problems tend to produce big fear. And maybe there are some people even here this morning who are living in some pretty big problems and you're feeling some pretty big anxieties, right? Big fear. This is going to require a big solution. I don't have it. But these folks remember that while our problems are big and they've got some big problems, they remember that they serve an even bigger God. And a church that prays to a little God will forever be a church with little faith and little courage. But a church that prays to a big God that sees Him for who He is will be filled with everything that they need. And so right now, again, in our Life Together program, we're memorizing the New City Catechism and we're doing question number two. And question number two has been challenging. I dare not throw this out because I don't know that anyone has it memorized yet. What is God? Yeah, I'm not going to do it. Nobody? Yeah, it's, it's tough. 
God is the creator. I don't know if I've got this. Let's try it. God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal and infinite. He's unchangeable in His power and perfection, in His goodness and glory, in His wisdom, His justice, and His truth. Nothing happens except by Him and through His will. And that's a mouthful. And you wonder, well, why are we subjecting ourselves to this? Why are we trying to lock this in? Because what we believe about God is the most important thing about us, as R.C. Sproul said. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The way that we respond to our trials, the way that we interact with our spouses and our children, the way that you interact in your workplace, you know, everything that you do, you know, what you save for, what your life is all about, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And this church in Jerusalem is on the brink of a crisis. They're on the brink of a crisis. The leaders in their city said, if you keep talking about Jesus, you're done. And the leaders in the church said, we're going to keep talking about Jesus. Which means it's about to get heated. Humanly speaking, they have every reason in the world to be filled with anxiety and fear. So what do they do? Where do they turn? They take their big problems to the sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They essentially say, the the leaders in our city are threatening to make trouble, God. But you made the heavens. And you made the earth. And you made the sea. And you made everything in them. So they might make some trouble. But you made the world. And so we're looking to you, God. We have a clear view of our troubles already. What we need now is a clear view of our great God. And that just leads me to ask you this question in application. And I'm asking this of myself as well. How do you respond when those fears and those anxieties creep in? Are you quick to surrender those to God? Or do you carry them with you all day long? Do you lie them down next to you at night on the pillow and you just think about them, bounce them around all through the night, wake up and pick them up again? Maybe you're carrying them with you right now. Why do we do that? See, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you know that one of the, one of the top problems when, when, when you say, hey, where's an area where you need to grow? One of the top things is a neglected prayer life. Right? So many of us say, my prayer life is it's neglected. It's not what it needs to be. I know that. I know that. And so then what do we do? Well, then we start to feel guilty and we say, well, I need to discipline myself. I need to discipline myself. I'm going to, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'll set it a a timer on my phone, an alarm for prayer. It will go off and then I will pray. And we go on Amazon and I'm going to order a prayer journal and I'm going to write in a prayer calendar in my prayer journal. When my alarm goes off, I'll turn to the calendar in the journal. And listen, all of that is awesome. That's, that's really, really great. You should do that. But it doesn't quite get to the root, does it? Why don't you pray? Why don't you pray? I would suggest to you that if your life is marked by prayerlessness, if my life is marked by prayerlessness, then the deepest problem is actually a deficient view of God. We don't see Him for who He is. When we, when we see Him as a little God, a disinterested God, a far away God, then we don't, we don't bother Him with our concerns. We don't bring them to Him. I don't think, I'm not entirely sure He can handle them, we say. We don't say it, but that's what we're saying when we don't hand them over to Him. We carry them with us. 
If he's small in our hearts and minds, then our problems will always appear bigger than what they really are. We need to see him. So practically speaking, this is why as a congregation we're, we're so intentional about praying the Lord's Prayer. Almost every week we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer in here. Why is that? So we want to lock that into our minds. He is our Father who art in heaven. When you pray to God, I want you to see Jesus taught us to pray this way. He is your Father. He cares about you. He art in heaven, meaning He art not on earth. He is bigger than all this little earth stuff. He art in heaven. This is why we pray the Psalm 23 so frequently. Probably once a month we pray that here. And our kids are memorizing it, and you should memorize it too. Because we need to see that the Lord is our shepherd. He's right there with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. When you, when you think about God, when you're in crisis, we want those images to be coming to your mind. And it's why now we're memorizing this new city catechism. Because when you think about God, we want you to immediately remember that our God is a creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. Because guess what? When this church faced a trial, that is exactly where they began. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is big. He has got this. That's how you pray when you're in a time of peril. I want us all to be able to proclaim with John Knox that a man with God on his side is always in the majority. Those 70 in the Sanhedrin are staring you down and you're here, Peter and John, and you've got this man who was lame who's now healed. There's three of you staring at 70. doesn't matter. You're in the majority because you're with God. That's the first thing we learn here. Second, in a time of peril, how do we pray? We pray this way. We remember that God has a plan. Remember that God has a plan. Because when the heat gets turned up and things don't go the way that we want them to and things hurt, and people are rude, it starts to feel like, like we're disoriented, doesn't it? It starts to feel like, oh, maybe, maybe it's all just chaos. Maybe it's all just meaningless. You know, what can I really put my trust in? I was putting my trust in my health or his health. I was putting my trust in my job. But all of these things have been upended. Is there any plan in all this? Yes. Yes, there is. The early church knew better. As they braced themselves for a frightening future, they turned their hearts and their minds to the Word of God. And they reminded themselves that these trials, as frightening as they were, were all part of God's plan. Now before we get to Psalm 2, which is what what they quote here, uh, first I want you to notice what they believe about the Bible. Because that's going to dictate whether or not we actually do this second step. Look at what they believed about the Bible. In verses 24 to 25, They say, and it's going to be helpful if you're actually looking at this in the text, they say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quote Psalm 2. Meaning, who said Psalm 2? It's the Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of David, by the Holy Spirit, said this. Now, who wrote Psalm 2? David. But God is the ultimate author, and they recognize that, and they believe that, along with the Apostle Paul who taught us all Scripture is breathed out by God. This is what we believe as Christians. It's important that you know that. This isn't just a a library, right? A a big library of books. It's not just a collection of of loosely connected stories, right? I I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, the Bible claims to be The Word of God. The Word of God about Himself. The Word of God about man. 
The Word of God about the world. The Word of God which tells us why the world is as it is. And the Word of God as to how the world can be put right. You say, well, why are we putting an emphasis on this? Because if we believe that, it's going to change our disposition towards the Word of God. If we don't believe that, if we believe that this is just a, you know, a collection of loosely collected stories from the ancient Near Eastern world, then you know, we're going to plop it on our shelf and we're going to pull it out from time to time when we're bored and we're going to read something that may or may not have some relevance for our life and, and, and then we'll put it back on the shelf. Which, by the way, isn't that how very many people treat their Bibles? That's the right way to treat it if it's just a loosely connected group of stories. But if it's the Word of God, well, that changes everything. And this church believed that this is God's book and it's living and it's active and it speaks today. And God spoke through His servant David by the Holy Spirit and He said something that applies directly to what we're seeing today. They looked to God for wisdom as they were disoriented by their circumstances and God led them directly to Psalm 2. Let's talk for a second about why he led them there. They quote in verse 25, and this is from Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So here's a question. They're quoting Psalm 2. What was Psalm 2 about? Anybody want to just throw it out? Anybody remember? Psalm 2 is a prayer for the... Anybody know? A prayer for the perfect king. That's what Psalm 2 is. So this is, it's written by David a thousand years before Jesus is born, but this is a prayer for the king. But as you read the prayer, you realize this is a prayer, not just for any king, it's a prayer for the perfect king. And so the church here, as they pray, they realize Psalm 2 is about Jesus. It's a prayer about Jesus. He's the perfect king we've been waiting for. And then they remember how Psalm 2 begins. And they remember, oh yeah, and because he's the perfect king, we shouldn't be disoriented or surprised by the fact that God is allowing this hostility to take place. God said this would happen. And so what we see in verses 27 to 28 is they begin to draw these lines from their present circumstances to what God said would happen in Psalm 2. So just look, that you can see that for yourself in verse 27. After quoting that, they say, For truly, in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. Those are the kings and the rulers. Along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So everything that God said would happen, happened. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So here's what they saw as they quoted Psalm 2 in their prayer. The hostility that they were facing as disorienting as it must have been, was all part of the plan. The plan that God revealed long ago. And seeing that, this young church was stabilized. And they were helped to face their hardships with resolve and courage. And the implication for us is pretty clear. This is why it's so important for us to root ourselves in the Word of God. Or to get the Word of God into us for those occasions, so that the Holy Spirit can wield it like a sword and fight off the enemy that harasses and torments our hearts. We need to recognize these patterns of providence that God has placed in His Word. We're never in uncharted waters. Let me just say that again. You are never in uncharted waters. 
God is never ever looking at your life and surprised by your circumstances. He has a plan. It's not meaningless. And He's given us the script. Right? We know how this story ends. And if that's true, then wow, we need, to, we need to learn the plan, know the plan, see the plan, love the plan, and rest in the plan. But then as we move into the third step, that maybe begs a question. You say, well, how do we know that the plan's actually all going to work out? Like maybe somebody threw a curveball that, that God wasn't anticipating, or somebody put a wrench in there, and now everything's a mess. And even though we might not say that out loud, isn't it true that sometimes we feel that way when in our lives we get these curveballs, these things we didn't anticipate, these losses that, that rattle us, or, or this hardship, this persecution we didn't expect. We feel like maybe, maybe somebody's ruined God's, or maybe I ruined it. Let's say sometimes we sin and we fall short and we do something so foolish that our entire life gets turned in, in the completely opposite direction, and we ask ourselves, oh great, did I just ruin everything? Well, there's an answer to that question, and it's the third thing that we learn in this prayer. As we pray in perilous times, we need to remember that God is completely in control. That's the third point. We need to remember that God is completely in control. This church that we find here in Acts chapter 4, they knew this, they believed this, and they rested in this. The first word in their prayer, it's, it's the Greek word despotis. I never quote Greek words, but this one is a, it's the word that is translated in your Bible as the sovereign Lord. It's one word. It's the word that in English we get the word despot. It's a strong word. The leading Koine Greek dictionary describes this despotis as one who has legal control and authority over persons, such as subjects or slaves. So this isn't the usual word that they use for Lord. This is, a, this is a significant word, a different word, a word chock full of authority and control. That's where they start this prayer, right? Because they've got a Sanhedrin, powerful leaders in their city who are trying to have authority over them, who are trying to control them. And so the church turns to God and they say, no, 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 you are the one with authority. You are the one who is in control over us and over this city. And this conviction allows them to declare in verse 28 that Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the religious leaders, all of these people and these powers who were threatening the church were all ultimately appointed by God, it says in verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They believe that because God is the sovereign Lord. He's large and in charge. He has a plan. Nothing ever gets in the way of His plans and purposes. Completely and entirely in sovereign control. That's what they believe. And let's just acknowledge that here we find one of the grand mysteries of our faith. And you go to Bible college and you can stay up all night just kicking this ball back and forth. With, with, and you, never, you don't get anywhere, but you have a great time. That's why we go to Bible college. This is the great mystery of our faith. So, but just think about the implication of this for a moment. If this church is right in what they're declaring, that God is the sovereign Lord, that all of these people who are persecuting the church, that they were actually doing what, what God appointed for them to do, if that's true, then ultimately that means that the cross was God's plan. Ultimately that means that the arrest of 
Peter and John was God's plan. Ultimately, that means that the looming persecution that this church is about to face, P.S., persecution that's going to include the stoning to death of Stephen, is ultimately God's plan. Now, God is not the author of evil. He cannot sin. And humans are not robots. We have free will. That's what makes it so mysterious. Because somehow, even though all of that is true, in the mystery of God's will, even our sin and rebellion fits into the predestined plan of God. And this church sees that, and they rest in that. And by the way, Peter said the exact same thing when he was preaching at Pentecost. He looked out and he said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God's plan, you crucified. God's plan, and yet you're responsible for what you've done. You killed Him by the hands of lawless men. So God ordained the cross. Nevertheless, those who crucified Jesus were responsible for their sin. God's sovereign. We're responsible. Both of these things are true. We see them both in Scripture. And yet there's this tremendous tension that we feel as we try to hold it all together, isn't there? But that's the mystery. And I love that we worship a God that is bigger than the little boxes that we try to put them in in our mind. We can't let go of these truths. They're both there. And yet we can't tie them in a neat little knot either. Our job is to stand here, just hold them as close together as we can and say, God, you're good. I, I trust you. As we reflect on his sovereignty, I, I want to ask you a question. As I go back to my Bible college days, maybe this would be a good question for us to have asked. As we reflect on this mystery, do we believe this? Or do we bristle at this? See, in perilous times, so when perhaps persecution's coming, or perhaps when just your whole world feels like it's shaking underneath your feet, you've just received some devastating news, or you know, some plan that you were really banking on just completely fell apart. In those perilous times, I hope and I pray that you will know and that you will rest in the reality that the God who loves you is completely, sovereignly in control. Because He is. And the New Testament presents this doctrine not as a riddle for you to solve or for the Bible college geeks to bat back and forth, but as a comfort for you to rest in in your real life. That's what this doctrine is for. It's not to bug you. It's not to get you on your laptop trying to solve the mystery. It is, it is to comfort you so that you can rest in it. The Apostle Paul saw this. That's why he could say in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. He says, we know this. We couldn't know this if God wasn't large and in charge. If He wasn't sovereignly in control. If people could do things that would thwart His plan and ruin His thing, if there was any power that was greater than God, then we couldn't say we know. We would, we would pray with Paul. And we hope that all things work together for good. We are 90% confident. No. Paul says no, we know. We know this. That all things work together for good. This church here in Acts chapter 4 know this. Peter knows this. And they rest in this. G. Campbell Morgan says, I love this quote, talks about this church, and he says, they saw the people assembled 
tumultuously together. So they see that. But high over it all, they saw the throne and God governing and compelling. Church, that's my prayer for us. That we would see high over our troubles, and I don't know what troubles we're going to face. I don't know what troubles you individually are facing or will face. I look across this room, I know that some of you are facing real troubles even this week. But I don't know what's in store for us as a church. But what I do know is that high over our troubles and our circumstances is the throne. And our Father who art in heaven. The shepherd who leads us and protects us and directs us. The creator and sustainer of everyone and everything is seated on His throne and He is entirely, completely, lovingly, perfectly in control. That is the clear testimony of Scripture. Our God is not a reactive God. Scripture doesn't present God as sitting on the throne watching as we make a mess and then jumping down and fix up the mess, right? And Oh no, they made a mess over here just always frantically trying to turn it around for good. That's not who He is. He's not a passive God either. He's not up in heaven sitting back on the couch just kind of watching us, laughing about the messes that we make. Oh, too bad. He's going to have to live in that one for a while. That's not Him. He's not a powerless God. He's not bound in any way, by anyone or anything. There's no opposition that ever binds our God. There's nothing more powerful than His will. That includes even your free will, by the way. He's not bound by anyone or anything. He is the sovereign Lord. And He is completely and perfectly in control. That's the third thing we need to remember as we pray in perilous times. I know that those first three are connected. It's almost like He's got this little jewel and He's spinning it around you know, three times so we can see the light shining through it in different ways. But, then, but it paves the way for what we see in this fourth lesson. As we pray in perilous times, we need to recognize the opportunity in adversity. Recognize the opportunity in adversity. And the reason why we've spent so much time and why this prayer spent so much time discussing the first three is that this fourth step would be impossible without the first three. Right? If, if our God is not a big God, if he does not have a plan, if he is not perfectly in control, then my obstacles, my adversity, it's not an opportunity. It's something I need to get out of as quickly as I can. Right? It is meaningless. It is a mess. It is unfair. And I've got to get out of it. But if God is big, if he does have a plan, and if he is perfectly in control, then I'm here for a reason. And there's an opportunity here. So if I worship a little God and I face adversity, my prayer life is going to begin and end with, God, make my problems go away. It might end with, God, why haven't you yet made my problems go away? Or in reality, if I'm worshiping a little God, I probably am not praying at all. Right? See, little God, I need to try and fix these problems that are here in my life because you obviously aren't in control. And many of us live that way whether we want to acknowledge it or not. But when I see a big God who has a plan, who's in control, I begin to pray a little differently. I begin to ask wiser questions like, God, what are you teaching me? Don't let me miss it. God, how are you glorifying yourself in this? How do I, how do I respond to this? What do I, how do I live in this, God? I'm bucking against it. Help me to trust you. In verse 29 to 30, I want you to notice, again, this church, young church, new church, just saw their leaders get taken to prison. They just received news that 
you keep talking about Jesus, you're going to start, you're going to look like Jesus, right? You're going to be on a cross like Jesus. They just received this news. How do they pray after receiving that news? Look at verse 29 to 30. They say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and smite them. Nope. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and change the laws of the land so that they cannot do this. Nope. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. God, look at our circumstances and they don't say, and change them. They say, look on our circumstances and use us. Look on these circumstances that I'm in and give me the courage to be bold for you in this. I mean, what a prayer. Do we pray that way? Look upon this news that I just received from the doctor and help me to live in a way that is bold for you. God, look upon this circumstance in my workplace. God, and help me to love these coworkers and to resemble Christ even as they mock me and mistreat me. God, look upon these protesters outside of our church and help us to honor you and resemble you as we walk through in love. They ask for boldness to continue to live the life that God has called them to live in the circumstances in which He has placed them. There's an opportunity before them. Now, I want you to hear that because that is how they pray. Now I want to give a little caveat because I don't want you to overhear this. Because it would be easy for you to say, okay, so I should never pray for God to change my circumstances. Well, no, that would be an overstatement. I mean, when Jesus taught us how to pray, remember, He does have that, that petition in the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. That's a circumstance prayer, right? i got to eat today, Lord, and so I'm praying that You would change my circumstances and provide for my needs. And in fact, Jesus, when He was praying on the night that He was betrayed, He said, Father, if You are willing... Remove this cup from me. That's a circumstance prayer. Which means we're allowed to pray that way, right? Jesus prayed that way. We're allowed to bring our difficult circumstances to God. You don't need to be excited about the news you got from the doctor or about the loss that you just suffered or about the hostility in the workplace or in the culture or about the child that is wayward. You don't have to, you're not called to be excited about those things and you can bring them to God. But I want you to notice what Jesus says next. It says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there's that piece that we're seeing here in Acts 4 as this church resembles Jesus and what He taught them. Nevertheless, your will be done. They're, they're getting ready to strike us down, God, Creator of heaven and earth, Sovereign Lord who has a plan. It's just like what you said would happen in Psalm 2. I understand that. Help us to be bold for you. God's working in our adversity. We follow Jesus. Jesus who won by being crucified. Therefore, we should expect that sometimes our winning will look like losing in this broken world. Sometimes the witness that God has called us to involves suffering and even death. But when we have a right view of God, we'll recognize that there is opportunity in our adversity. And I pray that we would, when those days come, recognize the opportunity here. Ask for the eyes of faith to see it and to seize it. 
And that brings us to the fifth and the final thing that we need to remember as we pray in perilous times. I love this. Fifth, request and receive the filling of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. So let's talk for a moment theologically about what just happened here. Because didn't these folks already have the Holy Spirit? Didn't Pentecost happen just a few days ago? Yes, it did. And yet, how is it then that these people who already have the Spirit are once again being filled with the Spirit? What, what is this scene? G. Campbell Morgan says, this was no new Pentecost. That's not what it was. It's not like Pentecost times two. But a new endowment. A new filling. A simple formula of New Testament terminology concerning the activities of the Holy Spirit will always help us to intelligent thinking. One baptism. Many fillings. Constant anointing. These are all phrases of the New Testament. So, we want to be helped to intelligent thinking about the Spirit. And, and as I was preparing for this, I realized, and I don't know, but I suspect that there's probably some confusion even in the congregation today as we think about the Spirit. Some of you have been exposed to some weird stuff that you don't want to repeat. So all of a sudden your spidey senses go off and you get a little bit cautious, right? I, I've, ex- I've been exposed to some silly stuff. I had great experiences growing up. But there was some silly stuff that gives me pause. Others of you, you know, maybe you just, sometimes you're a bit reckless, you're jumping in. Let's think carefully about what the Bible teaches us about the Spirit of God. Okay, I want to I lay out two truths that we see in the New Testament and that we're seeing right here in Acts chapter 4. First of all, I want you to know that every single Christian is, it possesses the Holy Spirit, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Every single Christian, okay? There are some small slivers in Christianity that suggest that you can be a Christian without having the Holy Spirit, but there's a reason why that sliver is so small because it's so verifiably untrue. So Galatians 4.6, for example, Paul says, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, why did God send the Spirit into our hearts? Why did Paul say? Because we have matured, because we've reached a level of Christian maturity, or because, we've, because now we are speaking in tongues, or because now we've, we've got real faith? No. Paul says, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Well, when did you become a son? When did you become a child of God? Conversion. It's a, because you're converted. When you became a Christian, God put the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. That's why the Spirit is referred to as a seal in the New Testament. He's a seal that marks us off as a child of God. God looks at us and He sees this seal of the Spirit and He says, that one's mine. So every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And praise God for that, because we all need the Holy Spirit. But here's the piece that sometimes I don't know that we understand or that we see. While every Christian possesses the Holy Spirit, Christians are not always filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's a difference between possessing the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. And if you say, well, are you sure about that? Well, the Apostle Paul is. He writes to the church in Ephesus, to these believers who are already indwelt by the Spirit. And in Ephesians 5, verse 18, he tells them, be filled with the Spirit. And you've probably heard 
it described, that that verb there is a present, it's, a, it's talking about like a continuous thing. He's not saying be filled one time and then be done with it. He's saying be ever being filled with the Spirit. So I'm going to use an analogy here because my, and you might have heard this if you've been to this church for six years, because uh, my good friend and mentor Tim Kerr uses this analogy, and I think it's very helpful in my mind anyways. So this, this limp glove here, this is me. Um, so this is just Levi in the flesh. And this powerful hand here is the Holy Spirit. And so when, when Levi became a Christian, I received the Holy Spirit in me. So now I'm indwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit's in there. Um, but, you know, if I'm not filled with the Spirit, though the Spirit's in there, I don't have the, I don't have the power of the Spirit, right? I, I'm going to be doing a lot of things in my own strength. Maybe I'm still, I'm walking in persistent sin. I'm, I'm ignoring God. And I'm saved, right? I'm going to go to heaven. I'm sealed by the Spirit. He's here. But am I, do I feel the power of the Spirit in my life? No. No power here. You wouldn't, if you shook this, it'd be gross, right? But when I'm filled with the Spirit of God, right, when I'm, when I'm repenting of my sin and I'm walking in obedience and I'm asking with God for more of His Spirit, when I'm filled, suddenly this whole Levi is animated by the powerful Spirit of God. And He's in me and He's moving through me and things are happening through me that are different than things that happen through this, this, this Levi. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, isn't it true that you felt seasons of your life where you're this? Seasons of your life where you're just like bold in evangelism. And, and you're, bold, you're doing discipleship with your family and you just feel God's help every time. I'll tell you, there are Sundays when I've walked up here and I feel like this guy. And, and sometimes, you know, I try to just muster it up in my own strength and I preach a whole sermon like this guy and it's really sad. And I want to write an apology letter to all of you, right? Because I just know that, man, I wasn't doing that in my strength. Maybe some sin lingering in my heart or some attitude. Or maybe it's just I'm not trusting in the Lord. But I know there's a difference when I walk into the pulpit and I'm this guy. I just feel a difference. Because the Spirit is, is moving through me. And Paul tells us, be ever being filled with the Spirit. Be ever being filled. This church needed that. And you say, well, where is that in this text? They just received the Spirit at Pentecost. Remember, Peter was this cowardly man. Remember when Jesus was on trial, and we alluded to it earlier, and Peter stood at a distance, and they said, aren't you with him? And Peter denied Jesus three times, right? He's seeing the cost, he's backing away, he's being a coward. But then we see Peter in Acts, and he's standing before the Sanhedrin, these 70 brilliant men, and they're saying, stop talking about Jesus. And he says, no chance. I'm with Jesus. Do what you're going to do, but I'm going to speak of what I've seen. What's the difference between the two? Peter's just really matured, you know? He's just really grown. Good, good for Peter. He's been working hard on this. No, you know what the difference is? Pentecost, right here. Because suddenly now cowardly Peter, Peter who, who doesn't have the knowledge, who doesn't understand, Peter who's afraid of the cost, suddenly he's filled with the Spirit of God and there's power. And so he stands before the St. Hadrian and he says, listen, do what you're going to do, but I'm following Jesus. Now he walks out of that meeting and he comes back to the house to see the church and, and Peter's not patting himself on the back saying, oh yeah, we've got this. What does he do? They come together in prayer and they say, God, make us bold. Because Peter knows the boldness isn't me. Because I was the guy who wasn't bold and now I know what it is to be the guy who is bold and I know the difference and the difference is you. So fill me. And they pray and God fills them with the Spirit and he animates the church for their next mission. Oh, that we would be filled, church. And we should ask. Jesus taught us to ask. Luke 11, 11 to 13. Jesus says, What father among you, 
if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Answer, no. no none of you. Even the worst father here isn't going to give his son a, a live scorpion for breakfast. You're surprised. Nope. That's not what bad dads do. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? I just wonder, in your personal life, Christian, do you ask for this? Do you ask? God, fill me with your Spirit. If in Ephesians, right before he, he talks about being filled with the Spirit, he tells us not to grieve the Spirit. Which, so he's talking about there's this relationship we have. In our sin, we, we grieve, we hamper, we dampen the Spirit. But in obedience, as we look to God and ask, we are filled with the Spirit. And he says, you need to be those filled people if you're going to do anything in this world that we would be filled again and again. Church, we have the Spirit of God in us. Praise God for that. But so many times, don't we go through life with the bare minimum of what He has promised to us? We grieve the Spirit with our quarreling in our marriages, repeating the same circle, the same cycle, and the devil laughs because he can't steal our salvation, but he can keep us powerless. And we do it. We cave to it. We've got to stop by the grace of God. And we hinder the Spirit with our lust. And we settle for this momentary high. And we... we surrender this power that we need to go through life and we stunt the Spirit with our unforgiveness and we repeat these, these things, these memories in our mind and we hold on to this unforgiveness and all of it just stunts the move of the Spirit in us. But when we repent and when we turn and when we trust, it's not that we get saved all over again. You're already saved. But what happens in us is that God moves. That He sees in us a vessel that is ready for service. That He sees in us a humility And this is the one to whom I will look. The one who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. And in days of ease, listen, you can get by with the bare minimum, perhaps. Days like this, comfortable days where our biggest problem is this projector bulb. You know, we can get by with with the bare minimum of, of the Spirit and the power. We can limp through life. A lot of us limp through life. Me being one of them. There are times where we just limp through. I know there's stuff that's got to change. I know there's stuff i got to let go, but... Another day, another time. What's the urgency? And we limp and we limp. But in perilous times, church, we need the walls to shake. We need to be filled to the brim. The bold church is the Spirit-filled church. So let us ask the Father for a greater filling of His Spirit in our midst. So practically speaking, here's a challenge for you to, to try and apply this for this week. This week, as you roll out of bed each and every morning, and you're groggy, and let this be your first request. Father, fill me with your Spirit today. I need more of you for this day. I've got problems that I can't handle on my own. I've got opportunities that I won't even recognize on my own. I need more of you. So please, I'm asking, Father, fill me with your Spirit. And then as you get into His Word, before you even read a word, why don't you pray and ask Him, now, Spirit of God, would you open my eyes to see the areas in my life where I'm grieving the Spirit? Help me to see the areas in my life where I'm, I'm giving way to sin and, and weakness and selfishness and pride. Just help me to see. And then look to the place where God reveals His, His 
will for our lives. Get in the Word with the help of the Spirit. Just, I would invite you to do those two simple steps. Ask Him each morning. Fill me today. And ask Him to reveal sin and, and just to expose it and work in you. And watch what happens just in one week in your life. Watch what He'll do. Request, receive, be filled, and become bold. That's my prayer for us as a people and that's my prayer for us as a church. And to that end, let's do that right now. So let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we love You. You are the Creator and Sustainer of everyone and everything. You are eternal. You've always been. You are infinite. You will always be. You're unchangeable, God. You don't fluctuate like I do. Unchangeable in Your power and perfection, God. Unchangeable in Your goodness and glory. In Your truth, in Your wisdom, in Your justice. All of it. You are always all of who You are. And we can trust You, God. You don't fluctuate. And nothing happens except by Your will and through You. Which means that God, as our circumstances change, we can look to You and know that You have this and You have us. You are our Father who art in heaven. You are our shepherd who walks with us when we're in the green pastures beside the still waters and who walks with us when we're in the valley of the shadow of death. You're right there in both circumstances leading us, directing us for righteousness' sake. Your rod and your staff comfort us. You make a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Sometimes it's 70 of the Sanhedrin. Sometimes it's five angry co-workers. Sometimes it's an unbelieving family member. Lord, but in every circumstance, Lord, you make a table before us. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And nothing and no one can take that from us because our great God has secured it for us. We love you. You sent your Son to redeem us. To set us free from our sin. What greater love is this, Jesus, that you would lay down your life for a friend? Oh, Jesus, we... We are so thankful and we love you. We want to tell the world about you. And yet, so many weeks we gather here and we haven't opened our mouths once. And we're not even in the perilous times yet. Oh Jesus, I confess, I am a pastor and weeks go by when I don't talk about you to anyone. I walk through the grocery store and I talk to the neighbors and I walk into a world that is, that is dead in sin. People who are on the road to destruction. People who should be praising You and I don't open my mouth. Give us boldness, I pray. God, give us boldness for our families, for our coworkers, for our streets, for the city, for the world. We can't do it in our own strength, God. So we're not going to lash ourselves and, and sit here in guilt. What we're going to do is we're going to say, God, fill us with Your Spirit. Heavenly Father, You told us that you, you answer our requests. You're a good Father. You're not going to give us a stone. You're not going to give us a scorpion when we ask for these good things. So we're asking You today. We have Your Spirit. We're indwelt by Your Spirit. We are saved by You and we thank You for that. But would You fill us again? Fill us, Lord. As we go out of this place, would we be different? Would we be like the Peter after Pentecost? Opening our mouths without fear of, of repercussion looking with eyes that see the world, not, as, not the way that we see the world, but that see the world the way that you see the world, animated by you, directed by you, that we would be the body of Christ. That's what we want. So God, we pray this. We're not asking for silliness. We're not asking for novelty. We're just asking for what you promised. 
or asking for your power, for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?